I'm Shamari Reed. Welcome to Water for Teachers, a Heinemann podcast focused on engaging with the hearts and the humanity of those who teach. One thing I know for sure is that teachers are human. We have fears, we experience tragedy, we struggle, we are affected by crises and pandemics. And like everyone else, we deserve to lead lives full of peace, joy, and love. Join me and other educators as we move from logic to emotion, from the head to the heart, from thinking to feeling, and from the ego to love. This is Water for Teachers. Episode two. Yo, I am, I'm so excited. And I <laughs> have this funny, like funny story. Um, I don't know if you all saw, those of you who are listening, like two or three years ago, Adele accepted, I think it was a Grammy for album of the year or song of the year. I don't know. But she was so shocked. And so when she got up there, she kept saying, hi, hi, hi. And that's what I feel in my head as we get into episode two. I want to say to all the listeners out there, hi, hi, hi. Thank you for joining us. You know, I feel so lucky. And I can really only express gratitude because yet again, here I am getting to engage with the heart and the humanity of a brilliant human who teaches, Tara. But before I invite Tara to sort of engage with me in some dialogue, I want to start off today's episode, as I do every episode, with a letter. And after the letter, I'll invite Tara to explore any and everything the letter brings up for us both. The letter I'm going to read today is from a high school student to their U.S. history teacher. Dear Miss G, most of my life, I have never been able to be inspired by any of my teachers. I lacked connections with all of my educators until I met you last year, and I was so grateful. I lacked connections because there was no one who looked like me, a young Black woman. Black girls have so little representation everywhere, and sometimes schools reinforce the belief of what the movies, the news, and TV shows tell us about who Black girls can become. So for you to have been my teacher and one who taught me U.S. history, a subject I used to not care for, meant more to me than any teaching I've received over the last years. Your zest for spirituality and your power, even when you had so little, made me want to learn. You gave me the motivation to pass the U.S. history regions, and you showed me that I could be someone other than a stereotype. So let's talk to Tara. Tara is a second grade special education ICT teacher in Brooklyn, originally from Staten Island, New York, and a former NYC teaching fellow. Tara graduated with a master's in urban special education. She says her mission is to educate and inspire lifelong learners. As a former yoga teacher and meditation enthusiast, she believes the life we lead is the lesson we teach. Welcome, welcome, Tara. Thank you for sharing this space with us. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. And I almost, I almost said it again. I almost said, hi, hi. <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll put that in the description notes so you all can see that video. But Tara, what's on your mind after listening to that letter? Oh, I mean, okay, so a couple things. Um, well, first, just like um, there's a quote, the life we lead is a lesson we teach. And, and that quote has really driven me throughout my last almost a decade um, teaching in the DOE. So when I hear that letter, I mean, it just, it, it clicks for me. This is the purpose. This is the drive. This is why we're here. 
Um, but moreover, I mean, this is talking about a teacher who is able to be vulnerable enough with themselves to not only bring up these topics, you know, teachers, I think we, we like to teach what we're confident in, and that may not be every subject. So, you know, if you have this type of teacher that um, can bring that vulnerability and, you know, connect, kind of bypass the cur curriculum, yes, the curriculum's there, but like, how can we take this to a deeper layer into the onion? Um, I mean, this is this is why we're here. I, I thought of um, one of my former students who had messaged me over the summer, and I was thinking, I was like, oh my gosh, the student Daniel, like I haven't heard from him in years. He's in high school now. Like how, you know, I, I can't believe he's still thinking about me and I still think about my teachers. So um, I think this is a really big part of the heart of, of teaching. Yeah, so take us, let's, let's go back to the beginning. You've been teaching yeah. for over a decade. And I have a rather, you know, interesting question. Some might call it abstract, but I'm only going to ask it and I'm going to encourage you to take it wherever you want to. Where does your story begin? Ah, my story does not begin in a classroom. <laughs> I wanted to be so many different things other than a teacher. But um, what led me to become a teacher is I, I was a yoga teacher. Okay, so I was teaching all ages, mostly adults, uh, vinyasa yoga in, in Manhattan, um, loving it. And I had an opportunity to actually join up with a uh, not-for-profit not called Fan for Kids, which basically fights childhood obesity in um, low-income neighborhoods. So I um, taught yoga at a school. I was an independent contractor at the school. And once I was teaching yoga to kids, I saw that, you know, like, Adults, we can go and take a yoga class or we're aware that we can go pop, uh, you know, pop a YouTube video on. But kids like this is really where we need to start planting the seed. I started yoga when I was 15 um, in order to combat stress um, at home. But, uh, you know, to, to be able to introduce um, a like health and wellness and how to eat right to kindergartners, first graders, second graders. I mean, that's really where my story starts. Once I was there, I became a teaching fellow. And um, now as a special educator, um, this is always infused into my teaching. I'm always asking my students, even in a transition between remote learning, okay, we get, we're going to take a deep breath. We're going to, you know, blow out our birthday candles, you know, um, we are going to, you know, get in touch with our body before we move into math. You know, there are all these little ways, especially now that we're remote and everyone is kind of like in their heads, a lot of overthinking. This is a way to get back into our body, even though we're inside. Yeah. Yeah. Have you found that you're able to do some of those things um, now? And also, let me ask you, are you teaching? Is it remote for you? Is it a combination? Are you in the classroom? Yeah, so um, actually for the last two years, I was out of the classroom as a literacy coach at my school. And this year, I really had no clue what I was going into. Um, I remember walking in the first day that we were allowed back in the building, it was eight o'clock. And I, you know, I went back to my office, and I was like, Oh, I might not be here this year. Yeah. You know, I might not be in this position. So actually, currently, I'm teaching both in person, two days a week and alternating Mondays and remote. Mm -hmm. So I'm working with two different cohorts, kind of switching my brain. Yeah, yeah. And so today, you know, we're talking about identity. Um, but before we go any further, I want to sort of ask you, for our listeners who don't know you, how would you identify yourself? Yeah, so um, I'm a New Yorker. You know, I was thinking about, you know, uh, 
you know, of course, I'm Asian American. Um, I was born and raised here, but my family is Filipino. Um, but I'm a born and bred New Yorker, uh, K to 12. I was went, went through the New York City public school system. Um, and I'm really happy that I can kind of share my experience in the public school system now as an educator in the public school system. And how would you say your identity sort of has informed the way that the world has interacted with you and the way that you have interacted with the world? So a couple things. Yeah. In terms of identity, it's like as a learner, um, for me, I, I gravitated towards my teachers. Um, I think when I, I grew up in a home of domestic violence, um, my parents got divorced at a young age. Um, we didn't have a lot of the family supports that my other friends did growing up. So for me, my school was really my family. Um, my friends at school became my family. Um, the teachers became replacement dads, you know, like it just, it, it was kind of like a really um, organic way to build these relationships that were missing at home for me. So I think for me as a teacher and as an educator, I really think about each one of my 31 kids and like, where, where are the gaps? Where are the gaps that I can fill for them? Where can I provide all these forms of love. Like I know the last time we talked, we talked about um, the five love languages of children, you know, the, the physical part, the um, verbal praise, the gifts, you know, how do I kind of understand my students a little bit more so I can give them any missing pieces that they feel they have? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, do you make any connections or draw on your identities at all when you think about your approach to teaching and what it meant for you to go through life as someone who grew up in New York, as a woman, being Filipino, being Asian American? Uh, definitely. I mean, just, I, I grew up in Staten Island, which is a predominantly Irish and Italian um, neighborhood. I was normally the only, you know, Asian person in my, uh, one of the very few Asian people in my grade up until I went to a more diverse high school. So, you know, I think about how exposure is really in the hands of the teacher. How do we touch upon, and, it, and you know, it's our responsibility to really touch upon all of these diverse cultures so that when our students are go out there in the world, that they're ready and prepared and they have um, some sort of basic understanding of all types of people. Yeah. And also I want to just stop and just share as we're thinking about identity that, you know, we really get clear about some terms because I'm going to use a term in just a moment. Um, intersectionality. And I don't want to like really, you know, spout theory, but I do want to share this, that when I'm using it, I'm thinking about intersectionality as a tool, like for analysis. And so I think like a pair of glasses that allow me to see something. And what intersectionality allows me to see is how the lives of certain people are informed by the reality of living within multiple systems of oppression. And so I always go back to Kimberly Crenshaw and the story she tells of Emma, a black woman who was seeking employment at a manufacturing plant and she wasn't hired. And Emma believed she wasn't hired because of race and gender discrimination. They get to court and the manufacturing plant was able to prove that they hire black people and they hire women. However, what they no one talked about, but that Emma knew was that all the black people who were hired were men because they were doing sort of manual labor. And all the women who were working at the front desk and doing clerical work were white. And so it wasn't that she needed two swings at the bat. She didn't have a chance at all. And so intersectionality then allows me to see how the experiences of, for example, Black women or Asian American women 
are different. And it's not a worse or a better, or I'm not playing an impression Olympics, but I think it's important that as we talk today, we really think about how multiple identities can greatly change the experience. I know as a proud Black gay man, um, my experience is very unique. And it's not like some of my cisgender heterosexual Black brothers or like my Black trans friends. It's mine. And I have to sort of navigate different challenges. And so, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there before we continue. Um, Because I do think it's important that if we're going to talk about what it means to understand our students' identities, that we come back to ourselves and we humanize ourselves and we understand that we too are human and not without identity. We are not just teachers. We are trans. We are Korean. We are Muslim. We are immigrants and so much more. And our identities certainly shape how we move through the world. And so in thinking about identities, I want to go back to a conversation that you and I had when we talked about how our identities might lead to certain kinds of trauma and experiences. And you and I started talking, um, but I paused because I, I wanted to have the conversation on air. But what does it mean to teach while navigating trauma? And so I want to ask you, what have you learned about teaching with trauma and what helps you cope? Oh, so this year um, has been the hardest in my teaching career. And you would think, you know, like, oh, it just gets easier as it goes on. But no, I I don't think anyone um, could ever predicted or prepared for anything like this. Um, Moreover, um, this was the first year that um, my mother uh, got very ill. It actually happened right before the pandemic started. Um, She was a nurse. Uh, She's been a working nurse for the last 30 years. She was working in January and um, I got a call in February um, that she wasn't picking up the phone, that that she she hadn't really been been responsive for the last um, 24 hours or so. So um, when I went to the house as a check, you know, I, I found her on the floor. Um, she hadn't, she had been very sick. She, she was actually diagnosed. They found out that she had MRSA in her brain. So, um, my mother spent about seven to eight months in the hospital this year. So I've been kind of juggling being a teacher, um, dealing with, uh, trauma of seeing my mother. And also this is during COVID. So there were times where a month where I wouldn't be able to visit her. I knew she was alone, um, you know, not being in control, but then having to go, you know, kind of like teacher class and, and, you know, keep it separate from the kids. So it's, it's been, it's, this year has been survival Shamari um, for me specifically, but I know that all of us are dealing with our own forms of trauma, even if it's a low level form of it or whatever, um, form. So I, what, what I've been seeing and what I, what I think, and when I talk to my colleagues, because that, that's really where the healing comes for me from this is, is speaking to my fellow teachers, but you know, like there is a resilience in this job, um, to be a teacher for this long in the DOE, you know, there's so much teacher turnover. Um, what do they say? Special educators leave after five years. And, you know, in my mind, when I became a special educator, I said, I need to make it to that five-year mark. I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to prove it to myself that I can do this no matter what email, what phone call, what, what you get, you know, this is, this is my purpose. This is my mission. And this year has definitely turned it, turned it all upside down. But to deal with that trauma, I had built a well for myself, you know, um, through yoga, through meditation, all those years of being like this really, you know, go getter 20 year old, like wanting to like, you know, 
take care of myself, kind of do do all of those those things that um, build your well, traveling and all that, those things that like fill your cup. I think that's how I was able to get through um, what I saw and, and what I've seen this year. Yeah. You know, I really wish I had you, you know, what, nine years ago or whenever I started my career, because I think I maybe shared with this, shared with you before. Um, at the beginning of my career, I was a Spanish teacher, by the way. I taught high school Spanish. And I lost my sister in a tragic incident. My sister was was, was murdered. And what I just did, which is unhealthy, and I'm saying this not as, you know, to get any pity, but to share with all of you listening, um, I used to use my work and my teaching as an escape. And I thought that it was like therapy and it was healing me. But what I found out that I was doing is I was actually pouring myself into work so that I didn't have to deal with other things. And so when I lost my sister, I took one day off, one day, and that was the day I gave myself to heal. And then I went to teach the very next day, and I thought that I could do it, and I wasn't vulnerable, and so I didn't really share with my students. And so they, you know, were buying my performance because I was so happy. And I was, I was teaching Spanish, and that was a day about family. And I don't think I even connected all of these things. And one of the students asked me very simply, oh my gosh, like, how do you say sister in Spanish? And I had to turn to the board and I started crying, but I, I, I was hiding it. And I could have just cried and we could have had a conversation. But again, this is the beginning of my career. And I was like, I have to be a super teacher. And so I turned to the board and I just started like drawing random stuff to sort of take up time so that I could finish crying and then turn back around and say, oh, here's a word for sister and we could move on. And so I wish I had you, you know, saying, talk to people, talk to your colleagues. It's okay to be vulnerable because I tried to just ignore it. And it only got worse until the students finally, you know, found out. And the next day, you know, that after they found out, I came and there was a card on my desk from an anonymous student saying, you know, I'm keeping you in my thoughts and in my prayers. And there were flowers. And I was like, I should have shared this sooner. I should have been vulnerable sooner, but I didn't know. We don't know. And so I'm, I'm happy that I learned it, but I wish I had, you know, someone like you sort of inviting me to share and to understand that I'm not alone. And that um, as teachers who are humans, we do all experience trauma and we're navigating all kinds of things more than just the math lesson or the science lesson. We're carrying so much. And I just needed someone to say that I could let it out. And when when I'm hearing you talk, it just makes me think about like the things that we do to avoid not feeling. Um, for me, it was just, you know, I, uh, my, my favorite Buddhist teacher, her name is Tara Brock. She says, you know, we distract ourselves in order not to feel. So what is it that you don't want to feel? And, you know, of course, you know, we're on the survival mode you know, we really have to compartmentalize it. I think about like, okay, I have to take this feeling and like put it in a box and like put it away. And, you know, like through your teaching career, there are breakups, there are, you know, mean texts that come in that you shouldn't have read during your lunch period. There are these random things that you're, that take you off your game and you really have to like, okay, you know, like you splash some water in your face and you get back out there. But, you know, what, what if, what if there was an environment where we're all learning from each other? Because if I hide this trauma, and granted, you know, it's never going to be the whole lesson or anything like that, but these pockets of moments, if I can be honest and vulnerable with them, then they can be honest and vulnerable with us. 
But I have to create that space, that learning environment where like, that's okay. You're coming in, you're having a rough day. Rather than us getting a back and forth about you doing your writing, you know, share, like, let's, let's, let's air it out. Um, and, and that's something I think the teachers at my school do really well, actually, with the social emotional learning, just having this clearing, a morning clearing, an afternoon clearing of like, let's just say how we feel, but like without even responding to it, because I think this is a second part to it. You know, when we go to our fellow educators, when we, when we're in our relationships, our friends, when we're sharing how we feel, sometimes we don't really want it to be fixed. Sometimes we just want somebody to just listen. And that is so hard to do because I've been trying to just, okay, I'm just going to listen. I'm not going to offer my judgments yet. I'm just going to be a safe container. And I'm like, wow, if I'm, I'm having a hard time in it, we're all having a hard time. I'm creating that. But I mean, this is, this is it. These conversations are what, what is going to get it going to change it and to try it and take that risk. Yeah. And that's why I think it's so important for us to be able to have these spaces where we can admit these things and not feel like we have to be on all the time. Something you just said, though, I found very powerful when you talked about sort of modeling, being a role model for the humanity that invites students to do the same thing. Again, I learned that after, but after I began sort of looking at my own stuff and my own trauma and my vices and how I was using my vices, right, to sort of cover up hurt, once I saw my own humanity, it made it impossible to not see the humanity in my students. And so once I accepted that, wow, if I'm carrying trauma and I'm carrying these things because of who I am and how I move through the world, they must be also. And so once I started sharing and getting vulnerable with them, they slowly, in their work is where I saw it first, honestly, in their writing and in their assignments. And then we started having these discussions. And so I just love that you mentioned, we can also model that. We can model what it is like to be a human who feels and a human who has things going on. And we can collectively heal. And and to what you said to that about like our vices, like, you know, I'm thinking about I, I used to be a drinker. I've been four years sober now, but something that I used to do early back in the day, you know, you have a hard day of teaching. I would go get my my Trader Joe's wine and, you know, you, you know that's what I would use to cope, um, you know, and, and trust me, I love those Friday happy hours. They are still awesome for healing. But they, once I became sober, I realized, oh, I was using that to escape resting. I was using that to escape just giving my body the silence it needed. Because I think especially when you're um, a teacher that's getting ready for tenure, you are the yes man, you are going to do everything and anything. There's only so much of that that you can do before you burn out. So it was just interesting that you said that. Yeah. And then think about being like, you know, a yes person. I also think about like, me and so my first school was like it was a Catholic school, um, and I was an openly black gay man. And so there was a part of me that was so grateful to be there that I became a yes person too. Oh, we need someone to go and you know work the soccer game on the weekends, and I didn't have the time. I was figuring things out. I was a new teacher. I was also waiting tables at night because of teacher pay, which we can talk about later. Yeah. I was exhausted, <laughs> but I felt like I had to say yes to everything, you know. And there's an imposter syndrome that sort of sets in sometimes, and that goes back to my identities. Now I can sort of reflect and you know, nine nine years later and say that's what that was. But while I was in it. I felt paralyzed and that I had to say yes to everything because I should be grateful just to be allowed in the space as a black gay man. Yeah. And it just makes me think about like the, like as we get older, being able to 
not only set boundaries in our personal life, I think as we get older and our relationships get better, we choose the friends that are really feeding us and not taking from us. You know, it, it, it correlates to how we're doing in our job. I mean, um, I think about my, myself, how I used to be a yes person, especially somebody out of the classroom. You just really like you want to like prove yourself like I deserve this position. So I'm just going to do everything and everything. And then you start to realize, no, I have a, I have 30 more years to go, Shamari. I have a long time before Ms. Benitez can retire. So if I'm going to last the next 30 years, like this year has been actually the first time where I had to say, I, I'm going to say no. And I'm scared. And I, I, I don't know if I'll be retaliated against. I don't know if I'm allowed to say no you know, and, and that's, that's not healthy for, for teachers, you know, like we, we should be able to enter into a job where we can feel confident um, enough to say no, be able to say no to things that are too much. But, you know, in the situation that we're in right now, it's, it's utterly hard um, because everyone is just so strapped. Yeah. Do you remember the first time, one of the first times you said no and how that felt? Oh, wow. It was this year. <laughs> it was just a few months ago, actually. No, wait. So, so 10 years? <laughs> 10 years, man? I, yes, yes. And I, I, I will give a little background on that. So um, m my mother's been a nurse her whole life. And, you know, our first teachers are our parents, our guardians. And most nurses are codependent. You know, you're, you're, you're giving, giving, giving and not giving to yourself. So that, that was something, you know, that I saw. Although I learned utter generosity. You know, my mom was always giving things. Uh, she, she was giving of herself, her time and her energy. But I realized, you know, now, like, especially this year in, in being able to spend time with her while she was in a hospital bed, this year, she was supposed to retire. Um, there was no party, you know, she had worked her whole life. I'm sorry. She worked her whole life. And I just imagined this ending for her. And she didn't get to have that ending, you know? So I think about myself. I don't want to run myself into the ground to the point where um, there's, you know, you know, there's, there's nothing left. So this year, you know, I, I said no. And I felt it in my body. You know, it feels like this, like, you know, eruption where it's like, no, 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 you can't do that. Like, you know, the first thing you think is like, you're going to lose your job. Like, you know, what's going to happen? And it's like, no, like we, we can't, we can't do that to ourselves. And, it, and if you have a job where you feel like you can't say no, that's not healthy. Um, so, so I did say no. <laughs> and it was okay. No, but it was okay. So this is, you know, it, it's kind of like, it falls on us to really make those changes. And, and I said no again. And, and I, and I'm still saying no. And the kids are still happy and the parents still seem really happy. So like, I have to kind of like take away this habitual thinking of like, if I don't do it, then, then they're going to think I'm not a team player or ABCD. But I, I think what's going to happen is there's a respect that's, that's earned by, by saying no, by, oh, she's taking care of herself. She knows her limits. And, and I respect that more than someone who says yes and then does a bad job or do, isn't present. Yeah, so it's it's this year. <laughs> Did that sort of, you know, tendency to sort of say yes and go along with things show up anywhere else in your life or was that only at of work? Of course. Of course, in relationships, you settle for less than you have because it's like, "Oh, great, I met somebody that wasn't on online, you know, I I really have to make this work." 
and you know, it's just so interesting because like, like my relationship in present day is so much better because I'm taking care of myself in other realms in, in other places. So it's, it's not that scary teachers. If you, if you can say no, try it. Yeah. I think one of the things I worked on the most with my therapist and I've been seeing my therapist, not my current therapist. I've been in therapy for, I don't know, 15 years. Um, I went to therapy as a young child because of my sexuality. And so I just stayed, I was like, Hey, I like this. And so something that took me a really long time to learn though, was to to be able to articulate my boundaries and to articulate my needs. And it sounds so simple now. I can look and say, oh my gosh, what were you doing? But I was unable, Tara, to say to someone, I need this, or I would like you to show up in this way. I couldn't do it. And so my therapist helped me discover it was because I didn't feel like I deserved it. And that's why I wasn't really asking for it. And so I had to go do some self-work and some healing and all those things. But I feel like when I started setting, saying no, it made me a better teacher because I took that to my classroom. And I told my students, you know, I know I used to be the guy who would grade in 24 hours. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not foregoing sleep anymore. And they understood. They were like, you were doing that? Why were you doing that? Aren't you the guy all about self-care and self-love? And I was like, yeah. They were like, you should have been taking time for you. Um, so it's a simple, it sounds so simple, just say no and say what you need, but wow, it took me forever to learn. Right. And we're, you know, if, if we're not engaging in these conversations with family or friends, like, where are we going to learn this? You know, like what class can we take in college? That's like, you know, boundaries 101, you know, like that can at least provide us with those tools. And, you know, when, when we're talking, like, I'm wondering how do I provide and equip my second graders? with that you know like how how do how do we teach children to advocate for themselves because of what they're feeling or not feeling or yeah so these days you know we're in this pandemic and a lot of things are happening where do you go for peace right now my dog <laughs> when i'm home I, I feel really fortunate that i that i have my dog but where i go for peace uh um my colleagues number one I have a morning group chat of teachers and it has saved me in, in many ways, just being able to like, whether it's, okay, I'm getting, you know, somebody sent a group message that good morning, we're going to have a great day, you know, just starting the day positive, like those same ways that we build community in the classroom, teachers, I think, find their own little ways of doing that with each other, of just like the check-ins, the, you know, okay, I just want to like vent this, this like frustration. I just want to let it out into the air. Thank you guys for being that space and then moving on. So that, I think that is one of my primary resources, but the, the meditation and yoga, it, it looks a lot different than it did 10 years ago, but in the, in the small spaces that I can grab onto it, it, it anchors me. Yeah. What do you love most about teaching? Uh, today, just seeing the children's smiling faces. I know it's such a simple thing, but being able to connect with these kids as they're also undergoing a trauma, they're figuring out the world as it is. I mean, they are some resilient bunch to be learning from. To to log on with them and just the good mornings. They're ready. They you know some of them are saying they love school, which is really weird, <laughs> you know. And some of them are really can't wait to come back next week into the building. Um, but it's it's them. I mean, this is all for 
for a greater purpose to to ensure that the next cohort of children that are growing up that are going to be voters I, are are equipped with every tool that they have to be the best that they can be. Um, I just taught a social studies unit all on the election, and I felt like that was the greatest opportunity I had in the world, like to be able to present something that they'll be reading in the history books to them at, you know, they're six and seven years old and for them to be having conversations about the election and, and just their world. I mean, this is the part that was missing for me. I didn't become politically motivated um, until the last four years and until literally the last four years, I got very comfortable in the idea in, in our democracy. So the fact that we can start to teach civics as a necessity. You know, what does it mean to be an American? Let's go back to these values and ideals that we truly believe in. This is this is important to me. Yeah, I love that. So the next sort of set of questions I try to ask all my guests. The first is, as a human who teaches, what do you wish others knew about you and your work? I wish others knew that no matter what, teachers want to feel prepared in front of children. Teachers want to feel confident um, in front of their children that they're teaching. And we don't always do. We don't. It can, it can mean, you know, we're about to teach a lesson and then we get a phone call or, you know, we have had something happen at home or we didn't get sleep the, the night before or we're just, you know, forgetting to, to do those self-care routines. But our hearts and minds are, are there for them. And, and I hope, yeah, I just hope others, others know that no matter what. I, sometimes you read things about teachers, especially nowadays. Um, not every um, broadcast is, is broadcast teachers in the best light. Um, and that can be that can feel really hard. It can make you, you know, not want to stay in the profession when your profession is, is viewed in a certain light. But I believe after this, after this pandemic, that there will be a new and fresh outlook on how teachers are treated and, and what we believe teachers should be equipped with for our kids. Yeah. And so along those same lines, as we think about all of the beautiful people who are listening um, and those who are teach, those who teach, what would you say to other educators right now? I've been I've been trying to post some inspirational things of just like, we got this, like, because <laughs> I, you know, what, um, after kind of being through different schools, um, working with um, new teachers and veteran teachers, you never know who you're going to reach with what you say, um, especially on social media and things like that. A little ounce of like motivation like that can can really push a teacher. But stay, keep keep on the path, stay stay focused on on your mission, and let the noise, let the chatter kind of fall away. One thing my one of my favorite yoga teachers said was, you know, focus on what's real and leave out what's not real. And some thoughts that we have aren't real, aren't, aren't facts, right? So to, you know, just stay on the path, do what you have to do, but take care of yourself always. Drink water, go to the bathroom, those little things I, that seem so silly <laughs> to talk about. But like, you know, one little thing that I'll, that I'll share that has really changed me this year was I took, I took the email, the work email off my phone. Ugh! It's there, but it's like silence. 
But I will say like not getting a flash email on the weekend has completely alleviated my mind. And I st I'm, I'm still caught up on work. You know what I mean? Nothing has gone awry. The, the world has not collapsed because I didn't check the email every, you know what I mean? Every 20 minutes. So that's, that's like one thing I will say that was, that was advice to me that has worked. I need to take that advice. I have two separate emails, but I have both apps on my phone. I have the Gmail and the Microsoft, but it is there, but it doesn't pop up. And so there is something to be said about having things not flash in front of you. But I love, you know, focus on what's real and leave out what's not. I, that It's a simple stuff, really. When we're like going through like, what do I need? What advice do I have? How do I? It's just like the simple stuff like smile, love, focus on what's real, take care of yourself, drink water. Um, so I have two more questions. The first I asked to all of my guests and the second one is just for you. And so here's the first. And so this podcast is called Water for Teachers and Water for Me, you know, it makes me just think about healing and, and restoring and, and honestly sleep and um, growth and all these wonderful things about nourishing our bodies and so I'm going to ask you, and as I ask all of my guests, can they take it wherever they want, but what is your water? So there is a few things and I, when I think about water. <laughs> On a funny note, I think about keeping my head above water <laughs> um, in terms of what, how reflexive and responsive we have had to be, um, how, how, how educators have had to operate this year. But, you know, my, my students are my water. Um, my yoga is my water. Um, meditation is my water. I think about water as, you know, washing off the day, being able to connect physically with water. I'm fortunate enough, enough to live by the um, FDR East River Park and being able to go and take a 10, you know, a, a little walk, a 10 minute walk to see water, to know that we're not the static people. The feeling that we have now is not going to be the same feeling as that we have in a year or in 20 minutes, you know, to, to remember that we're, we are constantly changing. Our cells are regenerating. There's a possibility to do, to choose something different. And, you know, that goes with all of our relationships, too. I, I mean, we can't look at our, our families as, as this, like, stuck certain way. They're also changing and evolving. Our kids are not who they were in kindergarten. So when we get them in second grade, they're these, you know, different and new beings. So I think about water as that flow, that change, that flux, and going with the flow. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And so my final question will feel a lot like the question I asked at the top of our conversation. So I'll sort of go back to the beginning and go back to our conversation around identity. And I want to end with this. What have you learned about all of your identities and how they inform what you do in the classroom? All of our identities. So when, when you speak about identity, I, I think a lot about um, the moments I spent um, with my mom in the hospital. I think when we're able to connect with our primary caregivers, whoever that is, whoever raised us, um, for me, my mom, I never really saw her as she was always mom, but like, as like, oh, she's a human too. Until I was sitting next to her, like holding her hand, she was just like me. And I, 
I, I didn't know that, you know, like, it's kind of like, you know, when you're younger, you want your mom so much. And then in your 20s, you push them away, you travel all over the world to just like, find yourself and find this identity for yourself. But really, like, I found myself in that hospital room, looking at her and seeing myself. And through that, my identity has changed. Because there were things that I wasn't accepting in myself because I wasn't accepting them from her. I, I, I couldn't accept certain, I, I think, you know, even if we love our parents so much, there's always like that one thing, oh, well, I wish you would have done that, you know? And that starts to fall away when you see we try the best with what we have, with what we're given at the time. So after that experience and now being back in the classroom, I feel like I see my kids for everything that they are, the wiggles, the this, the that, the, the you know, I, I see them as these full spectrum beings now, but I couldn't see them that way before because I couldn't see that in myself. So for me, what that's brought is a presence that I didn't have before. Um, I knew I was present in class, but I think I was more important about I got to get this lesson out perfect as opposed to how am I landing with these kids? How am I making that mark so that when they leave this classroom today, they feel that they really took away something? Uh, maybe they didn't learn math, but maybe they learned that um, something about their teacher that really, oh, I didn't know she does that too. Or like, oh, she went here and that's really cool. I want to travel there one day. So yes, that, that's the humanity that 2020 has brought to me. And for those of you at home listening, I'd like to invite you to join the conversation. What have you learned about your identities and how they inform what you do in the classroom? If it helps, you might start by taking a moment to reflect on your identities. I often think about the ones that are most salient to me or the ones I think about most. For example, I am always conscious of my race as a Black person and my sexuality as a Black gay man. And so I want you to sit with your identities and write them down. Free write about how you think they show up in your classroom and how they inform how you interact with the young people you serve. How might they contribute to blind spots that we all have, which make it harder for us to see our students' identities and their ways of living and loving and the barriers they might face? And finally, how might, after this reflection, you move, live, and teach differently? And so what have you learned? about your identities and how they inform what you, what you do in the classroom. And if you feel so moved, share your reflections and explorations with us. I'd love to engage with you and your humanity. You can share your responses on Twitter using the hashtag Water for Teachers or tag us using our Twitter handle at Water for Teachers. That's the number four. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tara. And thank you all of you at home for sharing this space with us. Until next time. In peace and love. Bye. Water for Teachers is a production of the Heinemann Podcast and Heinemann Publishing. Today's show was created by Shamari Reed. It was produced and edited by Steph George and Ashley Montgomery. Creative direction from Lauren Audette and Toby Anteo. Logo design by Courtney Enos. The Heinemann Podcast executive producer is Brett Whitmarsh.